Welcome to the Podium Podcast, episode 21. As usual, I'm here with Wolf Tyvee and Ash Milton. Say hi, guys. Hey. Okay, and uh, this week we're going to discuss Ash's latest Palladium article titled, Mariana Mazzucato has reinvigorated the most important battle in economics, which of course reviews Mazzucato's 2018 book called The Value of Everything. Um, I was pretty pleased with it. I thought it was an excellent in-depth review um, of the book, and I think Mazzucato herself uh, complimented your work on that, Ash. Yeah, I was glad to see. Uh, I, I think it's increasingly rare to get really in-depth reviews, so uh, a number of people who read it seemed to be pleased that, you know, it, it, it was more, I tried to make it more than just a summary of the book, uh, actually go into some of the questions involved. Right, right, but so there was a lot that I wanted to talk about as I was reading the review in, in response to various comments, but before we get into that, why don't you just give a, a brief summary of, of your piece, uh, and then we can get into some broader discussion. Sure. So uh, it, because the piece itself is a book review, I'm not going to go into sort of every point I make in there, but I'll address the broad theme. Um, so Mariana Mazzucato, who, who is she? She's a, an economist based at University College London, um, comes from a, a sort of Schumpeterian tradition. So a, an economic focus on innovation as being really important. Uh, and a lot of her work has looked at this question of innovation uh, and try to challenge some of the tropes or stereotypes as to where it comes from. So she's very critical of the idea that, for example, states cannot be drivers of innovation, um, that, you know, states don't produce positive value uh, and just crowd out the private sector. Um, and in the case of this book, she's taken a broader uh, view and is actually looking at some of the questions in economics um, where the current orthodoxies have underpinned um, th this focus on innovation as just coming from decentralized markets. Uh, and, and, you know, she looks at a number of sectors uh, that she thinks have been adversely affected or in turn are adversely affecting the economy. So her, her opening uh, question, and, and this is an example that she uses in um, a lot of her work, is in 2010... Um, Lloyd Blankfein, who is the CEO of Goldman Sachs, uh, was basically asked, why is your bank so profitable? Why are your employees making so much when the rest of the American economy is still sluggish from the financial crisis, which a lot of the major banks, including Goldman Sachs, obviously had a role in bringing about? Um, and his answer was very interesting because he said, the people of Goldman Sachs are among the most productive in the world. So, you know, that was actually a fairly orthodox response. And you can argue that he's just doing what a CEO should be doing. He's defending his employees. But it opens a big question. Why are they the most productive in the world? Uh, an industry that doesn't directly produce, but is only really meant to be providing liquidity for productive forces, uh, has caused a crisis that is actually now undermining the rest of the economy and despite that, they're in some sense productive. And the reason why, um, and she goes into this in the book, is the, the, the focus on how value is defined in economics. Um, in, in current economic orthodoxy, and you know, economics was my focus in my undergrad degree, so I remember going through this coursework, uh, learning this the way almost all economic students, at least in the Anglosphere, learn it. 
value is based not on some objective value theory in current economics. It's based on the idea of utility and the idea that revealed preferences, um, generally speaking, through, through prices, through whether an economic actor purchases an additional unit of some pro good or service, um, that that is seen as as the only way in which value can be substantively discussed. It's very subjective, and so on on a mass scale, um, it's it's often taken to be the case that profitability itself is essentially the signifier of providing value. Like th this is seen as the the strongest way in which you can really talk about value in the absence of some objective measure of what that means, because it's very difficult to have. Um, a theory of value that is objective and people have tried. Uh, the labor theory of value is obviously a very famous historical one. Both Adam Smith and Karl Marx held that theory, the idea that somehow labor that's realized in production is the source of, of value in an economy. Um, before that, there were the physiocrats uh, in France mainly. They believed that value actually is all drawn from land and that other services, other parts of the economy um, are, are in a sense just transforming or, or transferring the value that has been produced from land. So that was a debate that happened for many, many decades in, in economics as it developed as a discipline. But in the 20th century, you had what was called the marginal revolution, and the idea of utility came to the forefront, and it, it didn't so much win the debate as sidestep it. Um, it made the question of value entirely subjective and only a matter of what economic actors reveal. And Mazzucato in this book is arguing that that has impoverished economics, but also that it has actually undermined uh, both states and, and economies more broadly because um, innovation, a, a number of sectors... Uh, and, and we can go into on a more case-by-case -case basis how this is, but a number of sectors are not innovating or performing in the way that um, we would want them to uh, in, in, in a healthy society. And, you know, you can argue about what that means. But generally speaking, when we look back at golden ages of, of innovation, you know, the 50s and 60s in America, for example, the Apollo program or, or innovation in healthcare. Um, it was not merely a number of disparate actors in the private market. There was a lot of both corporate and public initiative and planning that went into that. And so the book, after this introduction about the question of value, the book takes a tour through various industries and weaves together a narrative on why this debate over value is important. And she, although she doesn't present her own theory of value in the book, uh, she very clearly takes a stance that um, value has to be brought back into public discussion. And so in some sense, entities that have the power to coordinate on a broad level, such as states, need to be more bold in defining what is valuable, what is a productive industry, and uh, ensuring that innovation happens in those industries. So that's that's the broad summary of the book, although it's, it's very in-depth and... Uh, you can spend a lot of time on each chapter. So I, I didn't read the book myself. What I'm curious about is is when she talked about physiocrats grounding value in land and Marxist grounding value in in uh, labor. Uh, was that more of just a, a historical discussion, or did she uh, offer any critiques or additions or modifications there at all? 
Uh, it is, it is to a, a large degree a historical discussion there. Um, I mean, she, she sort of lets the economists speak for themselves in a lot of ways. So, um, Marx and although Marx and Adam Smith both have a labor theory of value, um, Marx addresses industries that were more developed in his time, for example. And so the, the uh, for example, if you take financial capital, banks and so on, um, Marx has a more clear definition of how those services operate in a capitalist economy, whereas whereas Smith, you know, he he didn't really pay as much attention to the financial sector, for example. Um, one thing, though, that they agree on is uh, the question of landlords. And this is something that, um, you know, Adam Smith is an economist who gets cited in public popular discourse. Um, and often in a very biased way, I would say, one that isn't really familiar with how he defines certain terms, particularly that of a free market. So because Smith is has a labor theory of value, he sees especially landlords, but also other forms of monopolies, such as mercantilism, as um, producing rentier classes that are not productive. And Smith's definition of a free market, for example, uh, is actually a market free of rents. And so state intervention is... Uh, actually a component of preserving a free market, according to how he defines it. So Mazzucato goes, uh, you know, it, it is a crash course in, in economic history, but I, uh, th there's an effort made to smash some of the common myths that we hear about the people being discussed. Yeah, I want to tease that out a little bit, because when you're talking about, uh, like, rentierism, uh, I think uh, there is an intuitive notion that something in that area is not particularly productive, even though there are many possible definitions of productive. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we can't flesh out uh, a full point-by-point -point definition of what productive is, but there are various interesting thought experiments you can use to sort of like get around the concept by, uh, I think, showing how uh, ways in which the definition is is used doesn't kind of cohere with our... Uh, intuitive understandings of these concepts. To just give a quick example, um, a few of the important words often used in economic models would be things like value, efficiency, productivity, um, and I don't think these concepts are, are things that can be straightforwardly uh, read off of nature, and, and they often are the uh, base assumptions in, in economics when you're doing uh, re regressions or, or whatever mathematical models you want to come up with. Um, and I think in that case, then we start moving to more of a model of, of political economy and philosophy of economics when we're, instead of just doing the pure math, we're actually talking about uh, what is going, what's the theoretical work going into these assumptions in the first place. It reminds me of one particular definition of efficiency, which is when you define it as being achieved or maxed out in any given voluntary transaction. Um, and I think you can use a thought experiment in this case, like you might with Adam Smith's um, rentier example. So let's say, um, let's say you're a Saudi prince and you'd like to buy up an entire city block of apartments for you and your friends to stay in for about a week of the year. Um, and you know, you don't even bother hiring a property management company to rent out the places for the rest of the year. It, it just slips your mind. It doesn't matter. The money is kind of meaningless at that point to you. 
Um, and so in fact, for the rest of the year, you have this ghost city block in a prime part of the city that is essentially doing nothing. It's not being used at all. Um, mm -hmm. And according to some definitions of efficient, this is the most efficient distribution of resources because the transaction was carried out voluntarily and both individual parties were were satisfied. I think that example is, is pretty good at, at pumping intuition about there being something fundamentally off about that, that state of affairs. You know, you don't look at that city block and say, ah, you know, that, that building there, that set of buildings is is being used well or to its its fullest potential, right? There's some kind of a notion of of um, productivity and value outside of a simple two-party transaction because uh, it's it's just not the case that um, two-party transactions terminate with those two parties because the effects on everyone else, the external the externalities, both positive and negative, are quite significant. So the economy is much more of an ecological whole, and if that's the case. It's not saying that necessarily any given person ought to have a veto over that two-person transaction, but it is interesting that um, we do tend to find something off about these entire city blocks um, being just left empty and uh, us being uh, compelled under certain models to say that that's what efficiency or productivity actually is. Right, right. Well, and, and one of the things here uh, is that there's a lot of translation errors that occur between economics as a discipline and the way economic terms get used in a popular level. Oh, of course, I, of course. I, I've often made this comparison to like physics, for example. So, you know, if you're doing an intro physics course, the, the sort of problems you're dealing with, right, it's like, oh, assume that like there's no friction uh, or assume constant gravity or, you know, things like that. You're dealing with very simplistic models meant to communicate basic concepts and it's not until you get into advanced coursework sometimes even graduate degrees that you're starting to really see the problems with the simple models and work with more realistic ones but if you just did the intro course you would never get to the more advanced level you come away with a skewed understanding of those models and the same thing happens in economics so you know the the example of free markets is one um, what free markets meant historically in economics is very different than what that, you know, that term today just means like there is no government intervention. Um, you know, even now in economics, uh, when we talk about efficiency, uh, in say a perfectly competitive market, a lot of stipulations exist. Like you, you can't have anyone having control over prices. So you, there have to be a, a large number of buyers and sellers. You have to have perfect information. Um, there's a lot of stipulations here that in most actually existing markets will not exist. Uh, land, you know, the, the, the question you brought up has to do with land. We discussed that on, um, in the podcast with Siavash recently, uh, by its nature, land is, has monopolistic tendencies because it's a fixed resource. It's the only perfectly inelastic resource, you know, so long as we're bounded on earth. Um, and, and so people who own land, uh, even without improving it, uh, the value can increase uh, because maybe people around them are, um, up, you know, putting upgrades or building houses and more people are moving to the area. So w when it comes to actual markets, the value question becomes very complicated. And that, that, that's the attractiveness of the 
utility or the marginal utility idea. Like you don't actually have to deal with these complicated questions of value because you just outsource it. You say, well, everyone on an individual level or every at least every every economic actor, maybe sometimes you have a company, um, they're going to define those things for themselves. And they're sort of, you know, we're not going to delve into why they do or do not consider certain things to have utility. The the closest one often gets to that is that on uh, macroeconomic scales, you obviously do have to make decisions about what is productive and what isn't. Um, I think one of the useful things Mazzucato does in the book is look at GDP as a measure. Uh, and, and this is something, critique of GDP is something that's becoming more popular now. I actually think personally that it is a useful measure, um, but it certainly shouldn't be dominant. Uh, and, and it has itself been changed. So for example, um, the way finance is considered in relation to GDP uh, has has been updated over the years. Uh, the way that research and development costs are included has been updated. So they were added to GDP um, in the U.S. I think it was in the 2000s. And, the, you know, this added um, significant revenues to the productive economy. They they didn't appear, they, they'd always been there, but they'd been calculated differently. They'd been considered inputs, not outputs of production. So you can't escape the question of value ultimately, uh, even if you do try and use a subjective method. I, I think that the lesson that, you know, the, uh, Mazzucato doesn't quite put it this way, but um, I, I've seen this discussion in a few places. Value is clearly not just out there and objective in the way that the laws of physics say are. Right. It is social. It is embedded. Like things have value because of a context. Um, a popular example is is the diamond water comparison. So there's this weird thing where, like, in terms of the value of use, right? Diamonds don't have much use value, but they fetch a high price in the market. Water has, you know, it keeps us alive. It has an immense use value, but water is very cheap. Um, so obviously, you know, there are broader reasons as to why diamonds are expensive and why water is cheap, but, uh, it, you end up getting into tricky situations when you just try and sidestep the question completely because a state, uh, is obviously, you know, no state is going to cede all of its water resources so that it can gain control of more diamond resources. That would be an insane move because you would be existentially dependent uh, on an outside power now in a way that you aren't if you don't produce your own diamonds. But how, how many uh, models take that, the fact of states and sovereignty and differences of nations into account. But just to go back to what I was saying before, mm. I don't, I'm mostly directing my comments towards the very pervasive popular level economics education industry. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very, very different from economics graduate work. Yeah, that's, that's something that's really important. Like in physics, you know, we have our frictionless cow models, um, in, you know, in the, your physics 101. Um, but then, like, no one tries to argue on that basis that, you know, that some particular thing can or should be accomplished um, sort of in public discourse. But in economics, you get things like the entire regime of free trade being justified on the basis of this really spherical cow kind of model. 
And that's like arguably one of the most important sort of economic right. decisions uh, that lasted for decades, right? Um, and and it's in in public discourse, it's justified on the, on this this extremely frictionless basis. Uh, the, in particular, the assumptions they make are like that that sort of states aren't playing political games against each other, um, and, and that there's like I think some things about like how um, capital and specialization work. Um, like I, I think it sort of discounts the value of of maintaining capability but there's basically a bunch of simplifications that the free trade model makes that um that are are very sort of physics 101 but then that like okay you know great there's there's sort of like more advanced models somewhere in economics but no one ever hears about them uh and and they never get used in the discourse i would start complaining about physics if people started using spherical cow models to build bridges or or I mean, that's more... Yeah. Well, I mean, look at how quantum mechanics gets used in, like, New Age stuff, right? Yeah, that's yeah, I was going to say, like, like, when physics gets abused, it's, it yeah. looks very There's different. a lot it's of like New it, Age economics take... out there, I would right. say. Um, the, the thing that gets really... Um, da- the, the way that this discourse becomes damaging, I would say, the way that New Age economics, if you want, becomes damaging, is, um, I think, when you get to the fact that those models have been used to make decisions affecting the policies of states and governments. So, um, because, you know, even if you look at the 20th century and you look at the marginal revolutionaries themselves, so the the example of Leon Walras, for example, who he he agreed with um, the, the sort of model of utility that we've been discussing, but he also looked at natural resources and land as not just being commodities like other commodities. He was in favor of public intervention in in how those were used. Um, And so even uh, the marginal revolutionaries themselves, you know, disagreed on the extent to which their model led to just this kind of very simplistic free market approach that is now fairly normal in a lot of economic discourse, at least popular economic discourse. Yeah. And and there's uh, about the like resource question, there's always these these big sticky questions that aren't answered by these sort of current models like okay if i find some oil on government land who owns the oil Hmm. um and like who gets to reap the profits from that and so on and it it, like it always seemed to me that sort of like you know the the um it would be in the interests of the state to sort of just charge uh, charge sort of stumpage. I don't know what the word is in oil, but in, in logging, it's stumpage, right? Mm. Like, okay, you're going to cut X number of trees. That means you have to pay us, you know, for, for that privilege. Uh, and then whatever you make on top of that, you can, uh, you can take home as profit or like auction off the rights or something. And then it's like, it, it, but, but that sort of, that whole thing kind of presumes this, this more holistic, uh, conception of of like how you're using resources and so on. Like inherently, you're you're talking right. About inherently like, okay. limited and collectively maintained resources. There, the, right. the key term here, I think that co- that comes up is uh, unearned income. You know that term was fundamental to uh, the various schools of economics, uh, and and I you know 
from from the more free market to the more socialistic i think most schools did have a notion that you could have unearned income you could have income that was in some sense unproductive and illegitimate um at, at least if you're economically concerned about expanding real production um i would actually say that there is a way in which this exists in the modern day so state revenues right are often seen as in some sense unearned uh they're they're often viewed as parasitic uh even in cases where you know we're looking at natural resources or we're looking at um things like publicly built infrastructure or uh hard technological results of research um or medical products uh developed by public research uh br you know taking the, the, the state gaining revenues from its own innovation in the same way that any venture capitalist would is seen as very illegitimate so Can we give an income actually does that? sneak in i think hmm? Can you give uh, an yeah i mean so if you look for example at um like the 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 tar sands uh you know th this has been an ongoing debate not just in canada but across north america because a lot of pipelines uh were in development to um transport products from the, the, the oil sands in Alberta um, to other parts of the continent. Uh, and, you know, th this is a natural resource. Uh, presumably, it, it is entirely legitimate for the, the state, a public entity in control, in a sense of the, the, the country's public resources, to gain direct benefit, not just indirect in terms of, um, you know, economic development, uh, obviously, you can make the case that maybe it's best for the state to do that. But in in a lot of popular discourse, when it came to things like uh, building more aggressive sovereign wealth funds, this was often seen as as parasitic um, and just adding costs to uh, companies that were trying to get involved. How, how much? And how like. much is that? is sincere and how much is that just like there's someone who opposes the plan for other reasons and then just comes up with like the usual nonsense like you know everyone knows that or or everyone sort of feels something weird about like universities having these huge endowments that are basically investment funds that dominate most of the revenues of of the or in some cases like almost dominate the revenues of of the institution and there's something weird about that and then I, and like people just generally have this sort of like icky feeling about finance and so on. And so like there's sort of hay to be made rhetorically by going after any such thing. But it's but like they only sort of really go after it when there's some political dimension to it. And well, so I state, mean, yeah, of course, there's always a political uh, dimension to these things. But I, I think right, we're but in a what I'm saying here... is it's, it's not necessarily coming from like our public conceptualizations as much as sort of just like there's someone who opposes some particular project so they come up with a bunch of junk rhetoric against it well sure but you can still you know i i think you you can have a, a more objective economic analysis of whether the logic makes sense or not right i i agree that arguments are often politically motivated but let you know i'll give another example and this is more based on one that mazucato herself gives in the book um she looks at um public health research and uh, especially focusing on the National Health Service in the UK, um, you know, one of the world's most famous public systems. Um, 
and uh, as well as the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. And so she she looks at production that had occurred under those systems, and particularly in the U.S., a lot of the most innovative pharmaceutical research came out of publicly funded national health institutes um, and was done at universities and the like. Uh, however, a lot of you know these drugs, when they've come into the private sector, are marketed by companies um, according to what's called value-based pricing. So they're able to charge, uh, and this is in the U.S. in this case, not in the U.K., they're able to charge very high rates on the basis that they're gaining the full, you know, they're pricing it effectively according to the value gained by the consumer. Not even according to research and development necessarily, but because the drug is a high value to the user, the price can be similarly high. Now imagine governments doing this, right? So a number of the components in the smartphone, the touchscreen, CPU, etc., were created by governments. Imagine governments imposing like a large tax on smartphones now in 2019 on the basis that they were simply recouping the use value of a smartphone. You know, there'd be public outcry uh, for obvious reasons. But in the yeah, private but, sector, but I mean, this there was, there was public outcry against guys like Martin Shkreli as well, right? Yeah, there was, there was, um, yeah, well, and obviously from consumers. But the the point is that the the philosophy that Martin Shkreli was invoking, you know, he invoked it in a fairly extreme case. But the 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 philosophy of pricing is is the standard in the field, right? Uh, and and that's what's being critiqued here, right? So like the idea. Well, I guess what's happened is economics has thrown out the idea of there being a just price for something. And, yeah, and, well, and a just price is a very old, um, you know, it, it's sort of a, a very scholastic way now of talking about this. Sure, um, I don't know what the modern way of but talking about that is. The, 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 the I mean, the, the point I'm making here is that um, when it comes to unearned income, we're in an interesting situation where, uh, you know, a, a, this economic orthodoxy is used so that the private sector can essentially pursue profit maximization as their key aim under even legal requirements like fiduciary responsibility. But uh, governments especially are seen as not having a mandate to maximize profits. And in fact, if they do so, they're extracting value and they're seen as parasitic. Now, that's not to say that they can't be parasitic. Obviously, governments can be parasitic in a number of ways. But it's interesting to me that unearned income still comes through the back door. Right, like the smartphone example would be parasitic. Right, right, exactly. So, you know, if, if a company charges a high price for a smartphone, it's it's maximizing its its profits. It's taking care of uh, quarterly revenues. But were were the U.S. government to you know use things like the touchscreen as a justification for a high tax to try and maximize its revenues, uh, it would be seen as you know fundamentally harmful. And that's well, not. It's, but it's not I, just. I it's not just some weird. Hold on, hold on. It's not, it's not just some weird double standard though, because like if you look at the case where the government puts some fat tax on smartphones, like that's actually just harming the economy, right? And uh, and and right. Like, the government, I, I agree. I, I don't think this. Yeah, this isn't and, an and argument so, for a tax so, on smartphones. Right. No. But but so like the weird the weird part is is like we see the harm to the economy when the government is doing it, but we don't, or at least we don't talk about the harm to the economy when it's a private actor doing it. I think that's the point being made here. It's like the situations are in fact symmetric, but we're not seeing it when it's a, when it's a private actor doing it. Right. And, and so um, a, a large part of the book focuses on the financial sector as an example of this. Uh, 
and, you know, drawing on the blank fiend quote, looking at how finance and the financialization of the economy um, through p things like private equity firms uh, and, and the way that even nominally companies that are not financial firms have started engaging in financial sector activity. Um, she argues that, yeah, you, you have your evidence of a sector that is crowding out and over leveraging other parts of the economy and actively harming them to increase its own value. Now, if government drives out pub private activity, um, you know, all of public choice theory essentially exists to address this, it is seen as harmful. But if finance does that, the absence of a value discussion makes it basically impossible to see them as parasitic. Uh, they're maximizing their profits. Okay, maybe other parts of the economy are being harmed, but this is the result of market choices. And that's, that's the central point of the discussion, I think. Um, it is legitimate to talk about governments, you know, that, that, that governments should not crowd out private activity. Uh, in essence, this logic is now just being extended to other sectors. We should also be able to talk about how finance or, or any other sector might be uh, harmful even when profit maximization is occurring. Yeah, I mean, and, and like you could imagine sort of justifying the, the sort of skepticism of, of government if, if um, it, you know, I, I do think it's sort of correct that like, yeah, there is such a thing as, as the government crowding out private industry. But like, and, and you know, we should go after that. We should sort of um, arrange for the government not to do that unless there's some great utility to it. But like, so you could sort of like excuse the current state of discourse if, if in fact something had been done about the government crowding out sort of private, uh, private industry. And, and in many cases that even that's not the case. Like it's there, there is in fact this enormous sort of dysfunction and overgrowth of the government in ways that like, well, I, I would contest that. I don't think nothing has been done from, you know, the, the heyday of the, the 70s when it, it became uh, it became very prominently um, accepted uh, by the by the general public that state, you know, public sector activity had stagnated and had crowded out too many private actors. But you had the rise, right, of, uh, you know, neoliberalism is a very over no, but that, that term. that didn't really get fixed. That didn't really get fixed is what I'm saying. Well, like, didn't it? Uh, I mean, I, I, I agree that it probably didn't have the results in many cases that the advocates desired. But privatization fundamentally restructured a number of industries across the Western world. Like it's uh, yeah, did, entire did they, states did, have... Did they get better? Did they get less less like parasitic did the well, government activity contract like the government activity did not in fact contract that that overall um spending has generally increased but i think that's a very simplistic way of looking at it you know with, with a company we're not just interested Maybe. in how much they're spending we're interested in what they're investing in and and how they're treating the assets that mm -hmm. they own right um Mazzucato's case would be that, yes, maybe spending has increased in many cases, but it has now gone to um, servicing what is left of a public sector that now no longer is able to produce the value that it once did. And that, uh, in fact, in many cases, 
the public sector is, is, you know, what it does now is it bridges gaps that exist as a result of a private sector, which itself has become over leveraged and more short termist. So let me there's an example here in the book that I include in the article that I think is a good um, it's, it's a good sample of this. Uh, so th this is um, the Australian bank uh, Macquarie. So there was a major British utility company called Thames Water. And which which was put in the private sector, um, and it was eventually acquired by this Australian bank, and so the bank's incentive was not to directly invest and build up this company's resources, because their own revenues were better used to pay interest payments, and uh, you know service their uh, their shareholders and the like. Instead, what they did was they leveraged the company's private debt, uh, and that debt went up to uh, ten billion U over ten billion U.S. dollars over a period of six years. So they basically, you know, they gained control of what had been a public utility, uh, and what they did with those assets was they over leveraged them into debt. Um, and and these were like the sorts of operations that when it came to housing, right, were behind the financial crisis. So th this isn't just a one-off example that, that only affects this one company. Um, and this is something that, you know, is, is common among a number of these privatized uh, resources and utilities and the like. So... Um, you know, when you look at water, for example, water utilities, there's been a lot of debate even in recent years, the last 10 years, about private control of water resources. The, U or the UK, rather, has actually experimented with this. And in most cases, when you look at debt as a measure, um, the most financially solvent and sound utilities are ones that have not been kept in public control, but have been made non-profit operations. So Welsh Water, I think, alone among the major privatized water utilities in the UK, was kept in a non-profit model that was effectively similar to a public sector model, and it remained the most financially solvent. Um, so the, the the point being made here is that, uh, yes, government revenues increased, or sorry, I should say government spending increased, but it seems like what is left of the private sector has nonetheless been effectively undermined. And so that discussion doesn't go far enough. You know, when you go through these various industries, um, it's easy to get lost in the weeds because uh, the book looks at banking, it looks at public utilities, it looks at innovation, research and development in the tech industry, and each industry has its own ways where debt and ex value extracting practices uh, can be used. So in tech, obviously, a, a major example would be things like intellectual property, right? These are monopolies on, on productive um, or privileges of using something productively. Uh, and and they, they've been repeatedly extended uh, in various ways beyond what these institutions were initially meant to service. Um, so rather than getting stuck in each individual industry, I think that the broader idea to keep in mind here is that the idea of unearned income through rent and through value extraction that is unproductive 
is a, you know, that idea that that's possible has to be accepted before any of these industries can be. And so, you know, when it comes to that finance takes up a large part of this book, um, and, you know, by its nature, it's a highly complex industry. The ways in which value is extracted uh, vary. And, you know, th there's differences between the investment sector versus the private equity sector and so on. But I think, you know, a really telling example of how participation in financial services has become more and more central outside of the formal financial sector is uh, an example with Ford and General Electric. So, you know, these are American icons. These are, in a way, archetypes of the, the productive eras of American history. And so she makes the point that uh, in the 2000s, the U.S. arm of Ford made more money selling loans for cars than selling the cars themselves. Uh, and it came to General Electric, uh, its financial arm, GE Capital, made around the half of the revenues for that group. Um, for, for the conglomerate. So you're seeing finance crowding out uh, and becoming more and more central to what we think of as a productive economy, even in sectors that were never before considered part of the financial sphere. And for companies that were not seen in any way as financial companies. Okay, so hold on. What what exactly is going on with the debt thing? Like, like one simplistic view is like, okay, they're just leveraging up with a bunch of debt so they don't have to like reduce dividends to the shareholders while they cut costs or something. Or I, like, what what, hmm. what exactly well, the, is the, going on? The justification on? is investment. Uh, it's that it's investment in the company, and ultimately it'll um, pay off more in the long run. But the thing is, you know. What actually happens in a lot of cases is that the debt just increases and increases. Um, and maybe, you know, it's not to say that investments don't occur. Like, why, why do the investors want these this? companies? Like, is, is it somehow they're, they're able to, like, get debt and then and then put a bunch of stuff on the books that that, like, somehow has higher value than than the debt, like somehow it offsets or like what is. What exactly is the sort of accounting calculus here? I mean, you know, a company going into debt by itself, making bad decisions, that is not, you know, that is not surprising or uncommon. I mean, companies make bad decisions and go out of business all the time. Um, I think what's going on here, though, is is a case where because a, the a private equity firms can, can take on and resell a number of assets like this, um, there, there's perhaps less necessity uh to invest in the long-term value of the company right like somehow if the error is in the financial industry they can like propagate that error to a lot of companies before the chickens come home to roost right well and this this is a fairly this is something the book discusses is the way that um debt can be used to hide bad debt in a way uh you know, yeah. banks so do this through securitization me, of mortgages, and this was part of what yeah. led to the financial crisis. The, yeah, so let, yeah. let me just let me try to like rephrase then what I think the mechanism is based on what you've said. Um, so it's like you, the market, but basically fundamentally, the the bet that the if we put it in maximally cynical terms, like the the bet that the private equity firm is making is that if they invest in some some project that appears to be a long-term project, um, the next guy who they will pass the bag to will will sort of um, value that larger than the monetary cost of, of 
uh, of sort of taking on that investment um, or, or perhaps overvalue it. So like they're, they're sort of betting that some, the next guy is, is going to be convinced by this investment that's being made. And or maybe they even are convinced by the investment that's that's being made that they think it's going to increase the value of the company long term, but it's actually a bad investment. And and so what's happening is these firms, uh, the, 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 the firms being invested in, they take on a bunch of debt, they invest in something that's actually a bad investment. Um, and then this appears to increase the value of the company because people aren't able to do the level of sort of holistic diligence to know whether it's a really good invest, like whether that investment that was made was actually a good investment. Um, and so then the private equity firm passes the passes the company to the next guy at a profit because it looks like, oh, wow, this company's just been really trimmed down and is now investing in a bunch of stuff, um, whereas before it was stagnant. And then the actual reality is that it's it's actually just leveraged up uh, on a bunch of bad investments. Yeah, well, and I, I don't know, you know, in every case, how much was done to trim down the company. I mean, presumably, some sure. of that did I mean, occur. In some of these cases, um, it's... You know, and, and that, that can be done through things like bringing on contractors to fill certain roles, which is something right. that even a lot of public sector institutions have started doing. But the, the, the basic point of what's going on is that, yeah, uh, you know, the, the each cycle of debt uh, in some sense exists to fix the mistake of the previous cycle of debt. And right. that's why you have or, a ballooning or, mechanism occur or a ballooning result. Right. Occur. And, and, and at some level, like there's also this like bag passing mechanism where it's like sort of similar to the WeWork thing where like each investor is like, wow, this company doesn't really make sense, but it looks really investable. So I'm going to like pour some money into it. We'll grow it a bit. We'll pump it. And then we'll pass it off to the next guy uh, who who will end up holding the bag. Um, so, like, how much this is just like the private investment firms like are are sort of like making bad investments through their proxies, uh, in the CEOs that they put in, or how much it's like uh, like they actually kind of know what they're doing in terms of having terminology. Well, and, and, and this is the thing: a lot of these utilities, when they were privatized, um, what would end up occurring was that. It wasn't the worst utilities or the worst parts of the private sector or the public sector, rather, that were seen as, okay, we'll privatize these and, and put them out to the market. It was actually the better run parts. So the postal service in the UK is an example of this, um, where it, it was divided into different services and, and some of the well-run parts of the service were what ended up in the private sector. And so there, there's a yeah. kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where the public sector is seen as increasingly incompetent. But part of that is because actually the value produced in the public sector ends up being captured by the private sector and not attributed to the public sector at or all. Or at least so sold off to the public right. sector. Right. And, and so for me, I mean, uh, the, the debt cycle here is not the interesting part of the story to me. The more interesting part of the story is the way that financial uh, firms and equity firms have managed to gain uh, an outsized control over non-financial assets across economies you know in in this case um it's things like care homes and water utilities in the u.s in the 2000s it was the housing market right in in yeah and and so some some and in some incompetence in the in the investment industry or some structural problem is is causing that outsized power to result in in sort of mis 
mismanagement of these well, assets. Well, and I think where short-termism probably comes in here is that the, the pressure is to demonstrate improvement in the asset ex- as quickly as possible, right? So rather right. than maybe yeah, taking exactly. a more long-term approach, I mean, look at the way Amazon continually reinvested, reinvests till this day in itself. It's very long-term thinking, uh, sort of as you pointed out. But if, yeah, if the, you the want to be improving an asset over like four, eight quarters, um, you're not going to think that long run. You have to show results. The way you do that is you get you increase debt and you invest in something. Um, so I think that's part of what's going on there. Right, and I guess I guess so. Like the short term result requires sort of optimizing for legibility because sort of theoretically, the the market would correctly price things like Amazon, and and they'd be like, oh look, the management team really cares about this long term stuff and they're really good at it. So let's just kind of price all that in already. Uh, and, and Amazon will have this ridiculously high valuation. Mm. But in, in fact, like the price has just continued going up for the past zillion years. Or yeah, well, I, who knows the correct value of Amazon? That's in that, you know, that that would probably be an interesting piece, actually. Uh, how, how do we know the true value of Amazon? Probably Jeff Bezos knows the true value of Amazon. But maybe, maybe, in right? a way, in and, order and, to and, know the true value of Amazon, it's not enough to just look at current revenues you have to understand the logic of the company and its long-term plans yeah you have to understand holistically the strategic uh plans of the company and the strategic capacity of the leadership um and 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 so this is something like like what i'm saying here is that like okay we see in the case of amazon what looks like the market kind of like chronically underestimating the the leadership there where like a company keeps increasing in value because it wasn't already priced in. And and so like if you're going then for a short term perspective or short term sort of gains, then you're going to want to optimize for legibility instead of actual strategic gains, because the strategic gains are going to take a while for the market to catch up and therefore a while for the share price to go up. Um, and, but like, if you're optimizing for legibility, then the market realizes what you've done sooner. It looks like it was value, valuable sooner. Um, and so I guess like, like in some sense, the problem is this mismatch between what the, what the financial markets are, the, the kind of value the financial markets are able to evaluate versus the, the kind of investment that actually produces the long-term value. And if those things were identical, if the financial markets could sort of accurately identify real long-term investment, then you wouldn't have this problem. But, but the point is just that there is this mismatch between what the financial markets can, uh, uh, can evaluate and what, uh, and, and what actually produces the value. And then that, that distinction just produces the whole problem. Well, and to, you know, tell. you can make an even even more fundamental point than that, which is um, if we take the view that the the role of the financial sector is to provide liquidity, right, to yeah. bridge the gaps between um, household savings and and spending, and then business revenues and investment. But uh, it's not just liquidity, right? Because it's there's this there's this role of like buying up failing companies and restructuring them, right? Right. That, well, that, that, that's that my point. Like there, that comes from the fact that, um, in fact, the financial sector's 
The financial sector, like any other sector's role, is profit maximization. And so rather than just making liquidity available, you know, they become much more activist institutions. Yeah. Which is why they've managed to exert power over other parts of the economy. Uh, But, you know, I, I think that bringing Amazon here is actually very useful for this discussion um, because one of the things that has occurred, right, this is not just a conspiratorial kind of book. It's not just that there's a bunch of like malicious people in a room um, who are propagandizing. No, they don't have to be malicious at all. It's just like like my my explanation in terms of like it it doesn't have to be malicious it's just like the the kind of value that the financial sector can evaluate versus the kind of thing that actually is is the long term value right right well so I, I, the reason i bring up amazon is let's look at amazon that value could a lot of the value amazon has or generates could not have been predicted by markets because it was not clear how anyone would do that until amazon actually right. appeared and there there's a kind of catch too there there's an information by the time amazon had had benefited from you know uh it, it's it's corporate structure but also from a lot of um first mover advantages right when it became the go-to market for online shopping um it, it was able by virtue of being the first choice for a lot of people to exert market power that it, the same company coming in later in the game probably wouldn't have been able to and this is the case with a lot of tech platforms right and so you you have to what is this value is this legitimate value right there you can model that in a way uh as a type of rent because it is not um you know on the one hand okay people started using a platform because it was built the most efficiently or the most user-friendly or something like this but then the value of that um, digital real estate, you know, so to speak, skyrockets because now a lot of people are moving, uh, moving to that you mean, platform. You mean, you mean to say and like so, Amazon is effectively in a monopoly position and therefore like uh, therefore its enormous revenues are not necessarily like what a what a fully competitive market would produce. Um, yeah, and, and so right, like right, and I, it's be, because what we have here are markets actually actively being created on the platform. So this is a very interesting case where uh, of socially embedded yeah, value. So then, then we have this like there's this big question of like the Amazon antitrust situation, right? And and like we had this we had the article on that where basically the conclusion is well Amazon has actually concocted itself very thoroughly to be always good for the consumer so that there's no justification for our, for like despite being in this potentially like monopoly position where where you can view their income in some sense as rent on on at least this thing that they've created um they it, it's it's thoroughly good for the consumer so there's no justification to to break the thing up the other thing of course is like the the sort of like is it rent or not question is really about like who deserves the money from the rent um or 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 even who do we right. want to give the money to and like like there's there's yeah. going so to be in the case of amazon the the counter like, argument like like sure. there's there's a lot of opportunities for rent in society right there's there's like a bunch of oil sitting in the ground you can pump it out and like make money on that there's a there's a fixed amount of land you can especially fixed amount of land in cities and and so you can just charge rents on that uh, once once things like Amazon have kind of pioneered a market, there's there's in some sense a rent interpretation of that. Um, 
and and then so the question is like okay there's there's a bunch of this stuff going on that's effectively just going to be a tax on the economy because um you know we're going to have we're going to have the we're going to have people bid for like who wants it most basically um and and like one one view is like okay well the the government should just take all the rent revenues like anything that's sort of rent rent wise should go to the government that's one view um, or the other view, which is, I think, sort of the view that we're kind of uh, critiquing here a little bit, is that, like, well, rent's actually not any different from anything else, and, you know, it's a totally private matter. But then there's, like, then there's the view that guys like Jeff Bezos are, like, maybe, maybe he needs more money, right? <laughs> like, 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 like that, that he's, obviously, he's obviously actually able to allocate money very effectively. He's one of the only large companies, Amazon's one of the only large companies, or, like, uh, one of the large tech companies, at least, that doesn't have like a hundred billion dollars in the bank. In other words, they actually feel like they can invest, and and this right. And so the rent there is being used actively to invest in the company. Now, in a way, mind you, that will long run increase their position. Uh, and and the question will become, okay, well, if if you know, say that uh, Bezos does not solve the succession problem, and some future guy running the company just decides to like use the market power and generate revenue and not really keep reinvesting, that is when this issue will become like apparent in a way that I don't think it is right now. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's when you start to talk about like, okay, maybe this thing isn't producing the same level of value to justify like the the sort of exception that that it was being given, and this that's like. That nightmare scenario is like when Amazon turns into Disney, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and the 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 response here would be something like, and this is something already being discussed uh, in a lot of tech policy circles. Um, uh, you know, we we had interviewed Glenn Weil previously, and we had discussed this somewhat. Uh, if a company is founded on first mover advantages and also big data, right? The ability to effectively use data that is generated by a mass population. There's a weird relationship there because uh, that data couldn't be used without a central collector, but it couldn't be generated without the population. And there's a symbiotic relationship there. So it seems at the very least that the benefits of that data should not accrue entirely to the the owner, the formal owner um, of the data, right? That's where the value question would come up there. Yeah, well, well, yeah. To to get back to the value question in a minute, but but first, um, like that in some sense is a governance relationship, right? Like there's there's this yes. sense in which the state has this this like the ultimate monopoly rentier position in society. Uh, where, like, you know, by by nature of monopolizing power, the state is able to extract basically whatever it wants from the rest of us, um, and then, and, and and so there's like talking about like who deserves the money or whatever is kind of besides the point. The point is like the state has the power to take whatever it wants, and and so does like a lot of these monopoly companies, which. Which, like, in my opinion, sort of by nature, monopolies end up kind of being in this state-like position and therefore should be sort of integrated with the, the logic of the state in some way or another, not, ne not necessarily in any, like, naive way. But this then gets us to the question of value. It's like, okay, well, suppose we are in this position uh, where, like, you know, some guy like Bezos, um, 
who is effectively integrating himself with the state, uh, you know, is is in this position to extract relatively high rents from the economy, um, but is also producing a lot of value. Which we're getting into the question of like, okay, well, what is value there? Like, what? It's not just revenue. It's mm-hmm. it's somehow they're investing in something that's actually valuable uh, from some more holistic social or at least like state perspective mm-hmm. sense. Well, I, in and, the case of Amazon, you're creating a platform for markets, which is yeah, like, like particularly I've, I've powerful. It, right. You're, you're creating a bunch of new markets. You're creating a bunch of new, a, a bunch of new prosperity for a bunch of people. And, and like, I've heard it, I've heard people say things like, one of the major reasons to live in the United States is because the United States has like the full version of Amazon. Uh, and, and like that, it's actually, it, it, it's a big thing. Like it's very valuable mm-hmm. um, in, in a way that like, you know, like Google, it's perhaps more valuable than any kind of revenue uh, is, is revealing. Well, note that central coordinating forces that are able to, coordinate and create markets seems to be the recipe here that both some states and some companies are going with. Yeah, yeah. Like, like basically what we're saying model. is that, that Amazon and a state are not necessarily that different in kind. Exactly. Like Amazon but is structured in a very, as a company. In, in a way but... that we haven't seen before. And this is an important aspect when it comes to well, Amazon. I, no, I, I, I mean, want to... Have... Like, it, when we add the, the element of like, digital network effects and, and, and being able to obviously states have always created markets and actually that what one of the points Mazzucato makes in the book is she challenges the notion that markets are sort of the state of nature and then the state is the interloper in fact if we look at the history of modern markets they are creatures of states they were created you know by the British Empire by America by other states but what we're seeing today is the ability to coordinate and create markets extremely rapidly in a way that we haven't before Back in my day, LLCs used to grow off trees. Like they were just, they were just, you know, a feature of the of the market yeah. environment. Well, yeah, and, exactly. And the flip, the flip side of that is you get stuff like the East India Company, uh, where it's sort of nominally private, but ends up being very state-like in practice. Right. Well, and we had coups happen in the twentieth century that uh, large corporate entities had prominent roles in. Uh, you know, the famous fruit company example. Um, so political action, you know, I think this is a fundamental thing that we've discussed in Palladium is that yeah. uh, we're more interested in like the structure and its political implications than in what they nominally call themselves. Yeah, and, and yeah. And this like, makes it evident. Well, more, more specifically, like the current ontology that we're using publicly to describe this stuff uh, which in some sense is what we're talking about in this episode, this, this idea of like economic value and our economic ontology. The, the ontology is basically kind of broken and doesn't, doesn't necessarily capture the real distinction between, you know, your local repair shop and Amazon and the U.S. government. And like, like you know, these, these things are not necessarily like amazon might be much closer to a government than it is to like a sort of private business in the more paradigmatic sense um right well and this this actually is a good bridge to um what to me was one of the most interesting parts of the book itself um we've been discussing here how yes amazon is in a position where it is often engaging in things that look like rent collection and yet that is being reinvested 
and, and so it is also productive, obviously, in a real way. Yeah. Now, you made a comment earlier, which is sort of, well, the state is the ultimate rent extractor. And that's true. It can be that. But well, it just um, is. I mean, taxes are rents. Well, taxes are rents. But my, my point is more that, um, you know, a part of this mythology, and we've discussed this already uh, in a couple of points of this episode, but states can also be value creators. And this is one of Mazzucato's core, um, you know, ideas that she's known for championing. Uh, interestingly, this puts her um, on the opposite side of the debate from Marx and uh, Adam Smith. So both of them, Marx included, uh, put government as, as an essentially non-productive sector. It was just creating law right. and, and enforcement and things like that, but it wasn't producing value. Um, Mazzucato makes a very strong case that, in fact, states should be viewed as value producers uh, in the same way that, you know, a, a company like, like a tech company uh, can produce value while still having market power. Uh, and, and that because the debate that often happens here, right, in, in, in popular discourse is, well, on the one side, it's, oh, well, a company... Uh, can have a lot of market power, but that's because it's productive, whereas states aren't. And in the other side, it's like, well, uh, the, the company has a lot of market power, and so it's fundamentally just extractive and destructive, whereas states are, yeah. in some sense, at least safeguarding democratic norms or the will of the people or something like this. In fact, both, by virtue of their uh, economic and political power, can be extra rent extractors, and both can be productive. Uh, I would say, though, in the U.S. context, the idea of the state is productive is a much more radical statement than uh, that Amazon is productive. And so I think that's why this is yeah. an important part of the book. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I think, like, the point to distill that point again and, and to distill it further, it's, it's that the idea of being a rentier and being extractive is, like, fully separate from whether that's productive, almost. Like... Like it, it, to some extent, like rents that don't have to exist are are parasitic upon the the sort of I guess more competitive parts of the economy. Right. Or, but there's well, always going to be privately reinvested. The Georgia solution, the famous Georgia solution to the land question, right, is that well we we tax um, value of land in that case. So yeah, th there is still rent being produced, but now it is reinvested in. Uh, it is not being simply captured as profit, it's being reinvested. And so when rent is reinvested in in the correct capacity, it now becomes productive again. And that is the important yeah. aspect of this. Yeah, like, like the idea of just taxing the rent because like by nature it belongs to the state or whatever um, misses the point of, well, the, the actual question is not who gets the money, but is it sort of... Uh, invested productively or unproductively. Right, exactly. I think that that's an important point Which, here. Though, though this gets us into the question of value, right? What is production, yes, etc. Exactly. And like production and value, I think the, I'm actually going to be a little bit radical here uh, in sort of both directions simultaneously, which is to say that I think the sort of utility subjective theory of value is correct. You can't talk about value without talking about someone valuing it. Um and, and and that's basically a purely subjective thing. However, uh, I think that someone is is the state, like when we're or like society or like there's some there's some notion of like the collective authority uh, that's usually embedded in the state. And and so like 
when we're talking about kind of like uh, when people are just using a folk notion of what's productive and unproductive, I think I think what's being referred to there is like what's good for for the 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 whole and sort of through through the perspective of the state like the state kind of takes the central role in defining what the whole is and what it is about um and so there's there's this like you know so in in some sense it's like okay well it doesn't matter who gets the money as long as it's invested productively on the other hand like productivity is defined with respect to uh, what, in a sense, the state wants for society. And, um, you know, and the state can be quite wrong about what it thinks is valuable, but but there's it, it is in this position that's kind of like defining uh, how we think about all this stuff and it's, and it's defining... It it is sort of the actor that is acting in this case, is I guess. So what I'm are saying. are you claiming that like people operating in markets are responding to valuations made by the state in some no, sense? No, no, no. I'm I'm saying that like like okay, so there's there's inadequacies in the subjective theory of value if you take it to be fully individualist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, like it's sort of this idea that the individuals are coming together to construct society purely for our mutual benefit as individuals. Um, and not through any kind of collectivity or anything. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that actually, on the contrary, the existence of the state and the way the state interacts with society and the way we actually are is such that there is a collectivity. The state is at the center of that collectivity. And the state kind of defines the perspective of that collectivity. And uh, and so, like, when, if you want sort of, like, the most natural... Uh, I, I like I'm not going to go full like the state is always right or whatever, but like if you want the most natural view of what's valuable and who gets to define it, uh, who gets to define what's valuable, like whose subjective conception of value is being used, well, in like empirically in reality, it's it's like the state that is kind of deciding that in terms of there being a public discussion about value. So I, I would uh, distinguish a little more here. I, I think there's a sense in which you're correct. Uh, but so let me first, and I think I said this um, previously already, but I think two things are clearly true. First, things uh, do not have some kind of iron out in the stars objective value. Yeah. There is a subjectivity, but it is a collective subjectivity. So even right. even to the degree to which we desire things, right? So diamonds, for example... If you were to raise someone with no idea what diamonds were or how they're used, um, they they would have a much lower valuation, presumably. Uh, the the collective uh, value placed on diamonds, and then the artificial scarcity that that the the diamond um, you know the, the mining companies enforce on the market. These things altogether are what are what make diamonds valuable to an individual in a subjective way. So yeah. I think it's definitely the case, you know, you have to look at these collective value creating mechanisms. So I think you're correct. The state is an example. I don't think only states play this role. I, I'd hesitate to say that. Um, like large, you know, uh, marketing campaigns, you know, are, are basically intended for to, to convince people to increase their valuation of a given no, product. But, but hold on, hold on. Let me let me just like let let me be more exact about what I mean by the sure. state. Or maybe like let's replace the state with a different concept, which is like 
the the sum of power being applied to society um because right. like these these collective these marketing campaigns that exist to sort of like steer the collective subjectivity or or clear all steer at least all the individual subjectivities um they are in some sense like kind of uh they're they're propaganda power it's not like they're not delivering you necessarily something that is just like an update from your rational individual perspective where they're like they're giving you just pure individual value they're in some sense like defining your preferences and so on or at least a lot right, of the yeah, time yeah that, that, that's all i'm claiming um, uh I, i'm not yeah I'm and, not and what i'm saying on the rationality of it here yeah yeah no and what i'm saying is just that like that act of like defining people's um defining people's like subjective values and so on is itself kind of this this like very state-like action you are governing people right well and so i think that your point is correct in a very important case which is where um in this case states proper uh actually do create entire industries and make things valuable that were not before so look at rockets right i mean the the role that publicly backed research and especially things like the Apollo missions, for example, had in, you know, not just making production of rockets and, and, and rockets as products valuable, but in creating entire systems of, of education and of specialization yeah. uh, around the manufacture of of the technologies that were included in the Apollo missions and, and downstream industrial applications of those technologies none of that would have been possible without state initiative to uh build up those industries and the the mission oriented um economic uh plan that they they use and the political mission even right of landing on the moon and of winning the space race all of these created value in a very concrete way yeah or at least state-like interest right like it didn't have to be necessarily that it came from a state but it had like that the the value was was um or that investment was coming from like a state-like logic like if you look at elon musk's kind of justification for going to mars and like why he's doing spacex it's not like oh yeah i'm just trying to make some money man he's he's doing a kind of governing he's doing a governing move where it's just like okay humanity as a whole has to be multi-planetary. So I, as a sort of like first-class member of the, the political community, am going to make an investment in making humanity multi-planetary. And that's, a, again, it's a state-like move. It's a governing move. Um, and as for value mm-hmm. of the rockets and so on, like the rockets are clearly valuable from that perspective of like, okay, well, let's see if we can go to space and, and so on. Like there's this collective value to it. But when we ask like, well, valuable to who? Um I think I think one of the points, like you, you were sort of uh, echoing what I was saying on on at least the part where the individual perspectives kind of in some sense derive from what the state wants. But I want to I want to add this this additional component, which is like that that's not even necessarily what we're talking about. Like the who are the rockets valuable to? Well, they're not valuable to me as an individual. I'm just some guy. I don't need a rocket, right? But they're valuable to the state. They're valuable to the state in its political contests, in its development goals, uh, in its like wanting to go to space for whatever reason. Um, that's like the value of the rockets is 
coming from that logic, right? It's valuable to the collectivity acting through the vehicle of the state. Yeah. Well, and they're valuable to the population. They are not valuable to you as a user, but you living in a state that dominates rocketry and all the resulting exploratory and military domains that result from that is valuable to you but it's only valuable to you in that collective expression yeah well there's there's two ways there's two ways that it's sort of like valuable to me one is indirectly if it like feeds back into like making my rent lower or something by like moving a bunch of a bunch of nimbies to mars (laughs) or something but uh, like or if uh i care about the values of the state right Which, which i do like i i do have these collective like I do internalize collective uh, subjectivity to some degree, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I'm, you know, I, I take action in my life to do, like, to care about the the sort of collective concern from the val- from this governing perspective, right? And that's that's like why we're doing Palladium, yeah. right? It's not just like, oh yeah, man, we're trying to make a buck, right? It's it's we we think that there's this piece of society that needs to be governed better. Um, and we think that because we're internalizing this collective, the collective logic of the state, um, not just that like the state has convinced us to do this, but like that humans in some sense care about the collective subjectivity. Um, anyway, so there's those two ways that it can value that could be valuable to me. One is to, like lowering my rent. The other way is or like increasing my wage. But 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 notice that that's not that's not fully distinctive um, in the sense that. Uh, so for people who participated, right, in the industries that grew up around uh, the initiatives to win the space race and yeah. to develop uh, domestic and state capacity um, to, to win in these technological fields, those people also benefited directly in an economic sense. And, you know, by extension, you, you get yeah, all these ripple effects if, if you have uh, a, a stronger, you know, economic foundation in a particular region that's based on this industry then a number of other industries serving that population benefit as well so the, the it's not just that preferences that the idea of like the space race suddenly became important to people although it did but it created economic value directly and in a way that so elon musk for example as you pointed out he's an example of someone who um, built this company out of a desire to achieve this kind of high goal, right? That That's his telling of the story. But even he already had to have access to uh, yeah. his prior fortune that he'd made from other ventures. Um, America, a, a, as a government and as yeah. a state, you know, was able to do the same project on an even larger collective scale. Uh, and although that program stagnated in a lot of ways afterwards, Elon Musk even today benefits from uh, the downstream effects of that, right? Working with NASA, um, using things yeah. like launch pads, etc. And so um, the, 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 that is, I think, the important takeaway from this, um, or two important takeaways, rather. First, that although value is subjective, it is often subjective in a social and collective sense. And in that way, the individual... Right. Uh, it is not subjective in a purely individual way. The other thing is that once we start viewing value in that way, we can start to talk about, you know, we can bring back, I think, this idea of unearned income and start talking about the ways that rent is used or misused and how organizations that are have economic power, including states, 
can be economic value producers, and in the case of states, have the sort of coordinating power that makes them unique value producers that can't just always be replaced by the private sector. And that, I think, is a radical idea in this book, and, and for what me personally was the strongest takeaway from it. Yeah. So I, if I can add one more point before we wrap up, um, just like when you're describing kind of like the the actual genesis of a lot of the wealth that that created SpaceX in terms of like rocket technology, knowledge of of um, how to do all that stuff and, and, you know, the wealth from from Elon's previous ventures with PayPal and so on. And actually, even the idea of going to Mars like this, the the, the sort of yeah, popular the preference that we should do this multiplanetary thing, like a lot of that was created not by this like self-created billionaire bootstrapping process, but was created collectively, you know, through the space program. Like a lot of that just came directly from the space program. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are going to take that, they, they take like the immediate response to that is like, oh, well, therefore he doesn't deserve any of that money and we should take it all and like spend it on our dumb projects. Um, and, and I think like, again, we have to sort of like break that, paradigm a little bit with like no the question is not like who deserves the thing from some objective perspective of like who created it therefore they get it it it's more like um like elon was given a bunch of that wealth by various means or or got access to it by various means and then uh actually did something useful with it and and like that like let's let's again separate that question of um like where the wealth came from versus like who gets to spend it and so on. Like, like not just reflexively saying that all rents are bad or like all inheritance from the public sector is bad. Like I see this too much that the people are like, Oh yeah, Steve jobs didn't do anything. It doesn't deserve anything because like this, the touchscreen was invented by the government or something. And, and like, that's just the wrong kind of way to look at it. Final point here. The, the challenge is that, that logic apply, applies both to innovators in the private sector and to states, and both of the current sides are only willing to cede this on one of those two factors. All right, and, and with that, I want to thank you guys for, for coming on the show, and uh, now it's time for Thanksgiving preparations. We've got that tomorrow, so we'll head out and get the turkey, invite the neighbors over and some friends. And uh, for all our listeners out there, uh, thanks for tuning in. And uh, we hope you guys enjoy your Thanksgiving. All right. See you guys. It was a great discussion. Bye.